guys. Let's go and get started. Thank y'all again for coming. Um, quick recap over the past couple days. So day one, we talked about stories and how we were made for stories, how stories are so important and vital to who we are. And uh, we talked about how your life is a story. Your story needs to be shared with others. Your story needs to be shaped by God's story, which is the Bible. Yesterday, we talked about the bad stories, the false stories, the false narratives that the world is trying to tell us, and how to recognize those when they come. Today, I want to talk about the opposite. I want to talk, or really, not, not so much the opposite, just the, the other side of the coin, which is how to recognize good stories and what it is that makes a story a good story. Because there are certain elements. Every story has to have, but there are certain elements that every story has to have in order to be a good story. And that's what I want to dive into. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 78. Psalm 78. Just out of curiosity, does anybody know what the longest psalm is? 119. So Psalm 78 is actually the second longest psalm in the Bible, which is what we're going to read from. The whole thing. Just kidding. No, we're just going to do the first four verses. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 4. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and have known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. Let's pray. God, we need You right now to come and meet with us. Would You give me the words to speak? Let Your Holy Spirit take those words and drive them into our hearts. God, would You go before me now I need you. Would you go before all of us as we receive the word? And would you open our eyes to, first off, what a good story is so that we can recognize the stories that the world is telling us? But also, would you open our eyes to the story that you are telling us through scripture and through our very own lives? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 78 is a walkthrough of redemptive history. It's basically just going to walk through all the great things that God has done through all the great forefathers of the Old Testament. But it starts off by saying, I will open my mouth in a parable or a story. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, things that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children or the coming generations. We're going to tell the story. And what he's saying here is that there is something important about telling stories and good stories from generation to generation. And in order for us to tell good stories, we have to recognize good stories. And we have to know what a good story entails. Because ultimately, every good story has in its roots what Psalm 78 is describing, redemption. So I'm going to use one word this morning to describe what a good story is. A good story is a redemptive story. That's the word of the day, a redemptive story. A redemptive story is kind of a hard thing to define because the best way to define it is to say a redemptive story has redemption. Okay, so you're using the word to define it itself. But 
I think a better way to say that is a redemptive story is a story where the light beats the dark. It's a story where the light beats the dark in some form or fashion. Last night, after you guys finished the dance party and everybody was back in their rooms, I was up at the Moses house and I stayed up till about midnight. And I was out of the porch and I was looking out on the beach and it was completely empty. And there was a half moon that was just giving this awesome strand of light glowing over the ocean. And it was just lighting up everything around it. The stars were twinkling. It was beautiful. But I was sitting there staring at the moon and how it was getting, it was so bright on this one spot in the ocean. And it made me think about something. It made me think about science, of all things. Okay. Uh, in the dead of night, all right, this part of the earth is facing away from the sun. And yet, how crazy is it? that the sun still finds a way to shed its light on the earth by reflecting off of the moon. This is what a good story does. A redemptive story finds a way to reflect God's light into the darkness of the world. Even if it's just little bits at a time. A redemptive story is actually reflecting the redemptive story of the Bible into the world around us. And so we have to see that the roots of a good story come from the Bible itself, come from the the story of redemption. So I want to talk about five things this morning that every good story should have. And there are plenty more than five. We're just going to talk about five right now. Number one, a good story tells the truth. A good story tells the truth. Notice what I did not say. I did not say a good story has to be true. I said a good story has to tell the truth because there is a difference. God has a created order to things around us. And we have an order to our lives and the way that we were made. And a good story will tell the truth about creation and about who we are and about our brokenness and about the things that we struggle with. It will tell the truth about what sin really is and about what we really need. And about redemption. A bad story takes the things of creation and distorts them and tells lies about them. I'm going to tell you a story to illustrate that. Before I tell you the story, I need to tell you a couple things to set up the story. So when I was growing up, I didn't have very many like crazy like sleep things. I didn't talk in my sleep or sleepwalk or anything like that. But I did have hallucinations every now and then. Basically, a hallucination is this. Like, I would wake up in the middle of the night, and I would still kind of be half asleep, but alert and awake enough to remember and know what's going on around me. But I would see something that's, like, not real. But it looked so real. Like, I remember one night seeing Frankenstein's monster standing at the end of my bed, walking towards me like he was on a treadmill, but he just, like, kept coming. And I was just so freaked out. You kind of, you have to turn the light on for it to go away. And, you know, some nights I would see spiders on the ceiling or snakes on the floor, and it's so real. Or, like the coat rack turns into a person that's standing in the corner. You just have these hallucinations when you wake up in the middle of the night and you see something there that's not real. Well, over time, I begin to kind of train myself and realize, oh, these things aren't real. I can go back to sleep now. Well, also, so that's that's something I had growing up. Let me tell you another something about our house. Uh, My family still lives in the house that we moved into when I was two. And when they moved into, they bought it from Mr. and Mrs. Elkins, a sweet old couple, And when the Elkins were giving my parents a walk through the house, 
Mrs. Elkins was, was saying, you know, it's a great house, it's good for a family, it's got plenty of space and all this stuff. Oh, and by the way, it doesn't have any ghosts. And we always joked about that and laughed. My dad kind of looked at my mom and kind of snickered, but then he realized that she was dead serious. She was like, she wanted us to know that there are no ghosts in this house. And my first thought is, why would you even say something like that? Like, was that even on the table? Was that an option that we might have ghosts in this house? So anyway, that's the other part of the story you need to know before we get into it. When I was 16 years old, one night, I woke up in the middle of the night to a sound I'd never heard before. It sounded like a woman screaming, moaning, slash singing opera, kind of all of that in one. It was just this, okay, you hear that middle of the night, you're going to freak out. And I just sat straight up in bed. I was like, what the heck was that? And I'm frozen, and I'm scared to death, can't move. I finally gather my wits, and I creep out into the hallway. So also, you should know, my, my mom had just been in a car wreck, so she was sleeping on the couch because her back was hurting. That was the best place for her to sleep. So I walk into the living room to where my mom was sleeping on the couch, and I wake her up and say, Mom, this is going to sound really, really weird, but did you hear, like, a woman... She went, no? I said, well, let's go wake Sarah up. My sister Sarah was a year younger than me. She was 15 at the time. We go wake her up. Sarah, did you hear like a woman singing opera? No. What are you talking about? You couldn't hear anything. It wasn't still going on. And finally, my mom says, Joe, are you sure you're not hallucinating this? I said, I hallucinate with my eyes. I don't hallucinate with my ears. Okay, I heard something. I swear it was real. My mom said, Joe, maybe this is like something new that's happening. Am I going crazy? <laughs> so finally, my mom convinced me, like, it's not real. You're hearing things. Go back to sleep. I went back to sleep. A week later, I wake up to the same noise. And I run out in the living room. I heard it again. There's this woman, like, shouting, singing, screaming. It's like opera. I don't know what's going on. Said, Joe, you're hallucinating. So we go and we wake up my sister. Sarah, did you hear it? Did you hear it? No, I didn't hear it. I'm not going crazy. I'm hearing these things. And my mom was like, Joe, it's okay. Like, you have these hallucinations. You're just hearing something that's not real. You're fine. Go back to sleep. I go back to sleep. A week later, I wake up, hear the exact same thing. But I remind myself of what my mom has told me. This truth that I couldn't tell myself earlier. This truth that these things aren't real. I'm hearing things. And I have to, in the middle of the night, remind myself of the truth of this story. Okay? I'm hallucinating. It's not real. So because I remind myself of the truth, I'm able to lay back down and go to sleep. About three minutes later, I hear a soft tapping at my bedroom door. I get up. I turn the doorknob. creaks open. My sister is standing there. Pale as a ghost, looks me dead in the eye and says, I heard it. That's when it got real. <laughs> I was shaking. I said, oh my gosh, what do we do? There's sound that I thought I was hallucinating, that I thought was made up, is suddenly real because someone else has confirmed it for me. What the heck do we do right now? So we kind of grab each other by the arms. 
and we creep down the hallway. First thing we're going to do is go wake up my mom, and then we'll eventually wake up my dad and find whatever demon is in our home. We open the door to the living room, we creep in, and there's my mom on the couch, sound asleep, singing at the top of her lungs. It was her the whole time. It was my mom. And here she was trying to convince me that I was going crazy, that I was hallucinating. I was thinking there were ghosts in this house and Miss Elephants was wrong the whole time. It was my mom screaming and singing in her sleep. And I woke her up and said, Mom, it was you. Sarah and I both heard it. It was you the whole time. She hates when I tell that story. Anyway, my point is this. There were so many layers to that story and so many things that I couldn't figure out for so long. Like, is it a ghost? Am I hearing things? Is this a hallucination? Am I going crazy? Like, there were so many people telling me different versions of the truth. We had to dig so far to get to the truth. Here's what I'm saying. A good story, whether it's made up or not, will tell you the truth about what's going on around you. It will tell you the truth about what's happening and about how God created things. Even fiction stories need to do this. Uh, let, let, let me give you an example. There's this book series that I read when I was younger called the Percy Jackson series. And I always love Greek mythology, so I, I read those books. And they're, they're, they're plenty good. They're fine. But there, there's a moment in there where Percy like, saves the day and the gods didn't help him at all. He's like a half god, half human, by the way. And the Greek gods, they didn't help him at all because they don't care about anything. And the gods pull him into the throne room and they said, Percy, you did such a good job. We want to give you a gift. We want to make you immortal. We want to make you one of the gods. And Percy looks around him and says, I don't want that because you don't care about us and you didn't help me when I needed help. And I care more about the humans than I do you. So I reject your gift. And he turns off and walks away. And it's this kind of like champion moment of like, Percy, like, giving the middle finger to the gods, basically. (coughs) That is a part of a story that doesn't tell the truth. Because it's telling us this. It's saying, God doesn't care about you. God slash the gods. The higher power doesn't care about you. It's not involved in your life. And you have to rescue yourself. And you don't need him. That's essentially what that story is telling us. That's a story that is not telling us the truth. And we hear stories like this all the, all the time. And we can even look in music that we listen to. How many songs out there are not telling us the truth? How many songs out there are telling us things about sex and money and fame and parties and success and alcohol and drugs? They're telling us stories about these things that aren't true. They're telling us that that's what life is about. Life is about getting what you can and enjoying yourself while you're young. And that that's what's going to satisfy you and fulfill you. Ecclesiastes 6 verse 7 says this. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. All that we do is like we're trying to consume all these things, but our appetite is never satisfied. That's the truth. And so a song that tells you that you'll be satisfied if you indulge in all these things, that story is lying to you. So a good story is a story that tells you the truth about these things. That tells you the truth about what idols do to us. About how they corrupt us. A songwriter who is very good at telling the truth is a guy named Johnny Cash. He has a song called Hurt. It was one of the last songs he wrote. It says this. 
I hurt myself today to see if I could feel. I focus on the pain, the only thing that's real. What have I become, my sweetest friend? Everyone I know goes away in the end. And you can have it all, my empire of dirt. I will let you down, and I will make you hurt. That's a sad song, but it's a true song. Because he's talking about this empire that he has built up. All these things that he's done in his life that he thought would satisfy him. And he says now he looks back on it, it's just an empire of dirt. It's letting him down and he's going to let everyone else down. As sad as that is, it is a song that tells the truth. And that is more redemptive than the stories out there that aren't telling the truth. A good story tells the truth even if it's fiction. It tells the truth about who we are and it convinces us that we need to be redeemed in the first place. That's where it starts. A good story convinces us that we need to be redeemed in the first place. Which brings us to our second point. A good story is a mirror, not a microscope. A good story is a mirror, not a microscope. Here's what I mean by that. A good story helps you examine yourself before you examine others. There's a, uh, back in the early 1900s, there was a newspaper in London called the Times Newspaper that sent out letters to various authors all over England. Because this was the turn of the century. This was the, the Industrial Revolution. A lot of changes were going on. And they wanted the opinion of all these different authors. And they asked them one question. They say, what do you believe is the biggest problem in our world today? And so all these authors would write back and some would talk about the problems with the Industrial Revolution or feminism or the growing conflict in Eastern Europe and the potential of war or materialism or poverty or hunger or lack of water in third world countries. They would talk about the thing that they thought was the biggest problem in the world today. And then G.K. Chesterton wrote back. G.K. Chesterton is a Christian author, uh, one of C.S. Lewis's mentors, actually, from a distance. G.K. Chesterton answered that question of what do you believe is the biggest problem in the world with this. He wrote back and said, Dear Sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. That was it. That's all I said. I love that answer. Because G.K. Chesterton sees what so many of us fail to see. That a good story should be a mirror that shows us our own problems before we see other people's. Jesus himself said it in Luke chapter 6, verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? It's speaking of like clever sarcasm, there's Jesus for you. Why do you see the speck that's in that person's eye, but you can't see the log that's sticking out of your own? We are so quick to put other people under the microscope when what we should be doing is putting ourselves in front of the mirror. And a good story will help us see ourselves for who we really are. J.R.R. Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings, said this, that he wrote every one of the characters in Lord of the Rings as, as essentially like to be a mirror. Because he wanted the reader to see a little bit of themselves in every one of the characters. He wanted to see bravery. When you read Lord of the Rings, you're supposed to see bravery in Sam. And you're supposed to see your own struggle with temptation in Frodo. And you're supposed to see that you can still be humble and be a leader when you look at Aragorn. But there's one character in Lord of the Rings that you're supposed to see yourself in 
more than anybody else, and that is Sauron, the bad guy himself, the villain of the story. That's the, the character that Tolkien wants you to see yourself in most. That's why he depicted Sauron as an eye. That's all he is. It's supposed to be your eye staring back at you. Tolkien gets it. He's writing a story that is supposed to show you your own flaws and your own brokenness before you see it in other people. And if we can't see that, then we won't actually see the redemption in our own stories. So a redemptive story actually starts by pointing a mirror at ourselves instead of the microscope over others. Third point. A good story is not preaching. This is going to be kind of weird and maybe a little bit deep. Hang in there with me. Every story has a message that it's trying to tell. But when that message gets louder than the story itself, the message loses its potency. It actually falls flat. C.S. Lewis says there's a reason for that. He says, he describes it like this. He says, we have these watchful dragons that are guarding our hearts against the truth. In other words, the truth is trying to get into our hearts, but we have these dragons that are there just like swatting it away. So no, you're not getting in. You're going to have to try harder than that. And C.S. Lewis says the best way to get truth into our hearts is through a story. Because stories, especially children's stories, will sneak past those watchful dragons and deliver the message the way it was supposed to be delivered. And so anytime you see a story that tends to have like this agenda that's kind of screaming at you, that's like very noticeable and on the nose, that story's messing up in that part. Let me give you an example of that. You may, you may not like what I'm about to say. It's okay. We might disagree. Uh, there's a moment in Avengers Endgame, as much as I love this movie, there's a moment, kind of the girl power moment, where all the female superheroes get together and they go out and they, they fight. And the message they're trying to send is a great message. That women are strong, that women can stand up for each other, and women can fight. That is a great message. The problem is, in that moment, the message just got louder than the story. And it falls flat. And C.S. Lewis is saying that, like, like, basically, it's like you're not getting past the dragon. You're not getting past that watchful dragon. You're just kind of lofting it up there, and the message is getting too loud. So, because a good story is actually not preachy. It's kind of like you're squirting the medicine out of the needle before you stick it in the arm. All right? When the message gets louder than the story, it loses its potency. The story is what has to deliver the message into our hearts and that's something we need to be aware of when we see stories around us. A good story packages the message and subtly just kind of pushes it inside us. You know what story does that better than any other? The Bible. The Bible has an incredible message, but it shows us that message story after story. In fact, there's a story in the Old Testament about a young boy who faces a giant with a sling and a stone. He slings it up, hits the giant in the head, kills him, cuts the head off, and then he becomes king of Israel, and we just kind of keep moving forward. Now, if you read that story and think that this story is all about giving you some sort of message, then you're going to walk away from it going, okay, then, then that means that if I'm brave enough and strong enough, I can defeat my own personal giants in my life. But guess what? That's not what that story is about. That story is about something much bigger. 
That story is actually about Jesus. Because in this story, David is the champion of Israel. And what a champion is, back in the old days, when armies would fight, oftentimes they would send out a champion. One person to fight one person from the other side in man-to-man combat. And whichever one person won, then that whole nation was credited with that victory. That's what a champion did. David was the champion of Israel, but he was pointing us to another champion who was yet to come. And when Jesus enters the story, he becomes the champion of all God's people. And he doesn't just fight a giant. He fights death itself. He fights sin and destruction and shame and despair. He fights it all on the cross. And he wins. And we get credited with the victory. Because Jesus is our champion. Do you see what I'm saying here? The story of David and Goliath is not about you defeating your personal giants. If you're just listening to that story trying to get a message, like that's the preachy part of the story. But that's not what the story's about. The story's about something bigger. And it's, it subtly hides the message within this long, epic story that eventually leads to Jesus. A good story is patient in delivering the message it's trying to say. Which brings us to our fourth point. A good story has a hero. A good story has a hero. Let's get, let's get into real life for a second here. I was talking to my friend John about this recently, and we, 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 we brought up this conversation. There are so many people in history that we look up to, that we admire, people that we would consider heroes, but what happens when that hero comes under scandal or something is kind of like pulled out, you know, we find the skeleton in the closet or we, like something, something happens that makes us look at this hero in a different light. Does that dismiss everything the hero's done? Like, for example, what happens when there's this preacher who is a champion for justice and peace and we come to find out that they've had multiple affairs over their life? Or what happens when there is this musician who is really good and everybody loves his music for like decades but then you come to find out he was a child molester like do we just discount the music and the art that he made or what happens when there's this author who just wrote so many redemptive stories but come to find out he was an alcoholic and a drug addict like do we dismiss his stories or what happens when we look at perhaps the greatest king who ever lived the guy I was just telling you about who wrote half of the psalms The Bible says he was a man after God's own heart, and yet one night he committed adultery with his best friend's wife. And then he went on to murder that friend to cover it up. Do we just discount him and blow him off? Okay. The short answer to that is no. Like, of course we don't discount them. Of course we still listen to their stories. Of course their stories still matter because we are no better. And our brokenness and our shame is just as ugly. But... Here's what I want you to see. When we hear these stories about the heroes who fail time and time again, the heroes that we looked up to so much, but they always let us down, that should leave a bad taste in your mouth. You should walk away from that going, ah, I thought they were better than that. Or I wanted them to be better than that. The reason you should be thinking that is because of this. There's only one hero in history. That's the one you really want. Deep down inside, that's the one you are longing for, whether you realize it or not. There's only one hero who was perfect in every way. 
There's only one hero who was flawless. There's only one hero who can bring us the redemption we long for. And every other hero in every story is pointing us to that hero, Jesus Christ himself. Which brings us to our last point, the fifth one. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think the case that I'm making is that uh, a good story shows us the hero that we really long for, whether they have flaws or not. And that ultimately there's only one hero out there, which is Jesus. Which brings us to our last point. A good story will show us our deepest longings. A good story will show us our deepest longings. We long for resurrection. We long to be made new. And the best stories will awaken those desires inside of us. How many of y'all seen the movie Avatar? Okay. Uh, Avatar's a fine movie. There's plenty not to like about it. I don't think it's like a great story or that great of a movie. But there's something in Avatar that I love. And that when I watched it the first time, it just awoken. It, it, it stirred up something inside of me that just... Wanted to live on Pandora and ride those animals, whatever they are, like through the, the mountains and stuff. It just looked so cool. And I think what that was was this longing for a world that was just untainted by the curse. This world that just appeared perfect and flawless and beautiful. I want that world. And that's something true inside of me that is here that God promises to fulfill. And that longing is a good longing. I love the story of the Lion King because it reminds me that the Shadowlands won't last. That one day the king is going to return to his throne and he will bring light back to his kingdom. I love the story of Cinderella because it reminds us that we were made for the Prince of Peace. And that prince will pursue us endlessly until he rescues his bride. Look, we... When we see stories that have these heroes in them, They should be pointing us to the ultimate hero and they should be revealing our deepest longings and what we really want in life. Because what we really want is to be healed of our brokenness and our shame. Look, this is something I've learned in ministry. And this has kind of blown my mind. When I was your age, I used to to come to places like this. And some of you may be feeling this right now. You look around you and you see all these cool kids on the dance floor, on the basketball courts, or like out on the beach playing volleyball or whatever. And you, you're looking around and you're going, man, they're so cool. I'm so intimidated by them. I want to be like them so badly. And so you find yourself like your insecurity is like driving you to like try to copy them or mimic them or be part of that crowd. Or your insecurity is driving you away to like be intimidated by that and not be close to it. And you think that you're the only one who feels that way. And what you don't realize is that every single person in this camp feels the exact same way. Because every single person is broken and filled with shame and insecurities. I used to think I was the only one until I started doing youth ministry. And I realized that all it takes is a little bit of digging and a a few good questions to get to somebody's heart and realize, oh, wow, they are just as broken as I am. And they have just as much shame as I do. We all have this deep weight of shame that is bearing down on us, and we don't know what to do with it. 
a good story will show us where to take that shame. There's a lady named Kristen Lamb who's an author, and she says this, Readers don't connect to perfection. They connect to flaws. We aren't telling stories to perfect people. We are telling them to lost and broken and hurting people who can pick up a book and know that there is at least one freaking place in this world where the good guy wins and the bad people get what they deserve. She said that from a non-Christian perspective, by the way. But that's what a redemptive story looks like. It drives our shame to the one place where it can actually be handled. And I want to give you a story that demonstrates that as well as any story I think I've heard. Um, and, I, and I'm kind of closing with this story. My youth pastor when I was in high school was a guy named Mark, and he told me this story that before he got his job at my church, he'd been hired right out of college at this small rural church in Alabama as a youth leader. There's a family in his church husband and wife who had a 16-year-old daughter. It was her only child. And they were very involved in church. The mom was like super kind and sweet and served in the youth group. The dad was an ex-Marine and was the most intimidating person Mark had ever met in his life. Just big, strong, square jaw, like muscles ripping out of his shirt, like never smiled, stoic all the time, never shook your hand. If he did, he just crushed all the bones in it. Like, he's just such an intimidating figure, and Mark was just, like, kind of shied away from him every time he saw him. Well, one day, Mark got a call from the mom, and she said, I need to come by your office and tell you something. Are you there? And he said, yeah. She said, I'll be there in 10 minutes. She shows up 10 minutes. Her eyes are red. She's clearly been crying. And she said, I just found out that our daughter is pregnant. And my husband doesn't know yet. We're going to tell him tonight. But I'm a little afraid of how he's going to respond. I don't know how he's going to take it. And, and, and honestly, I'm kind of scared. And I would feel a little more comfortable if there was another man in the room. Would you be willing to come? And Mark went, what? <laughs> Welcome to ministry. Here you go. And he said, okay, I'll be there. So Mark shows up that night, walks in. The dad is sitting in his recliner watching a baseball game, his massive forearms just like hanging over the chair. Mark goes and stands by the fireplace. The dad like barely even acknowledges him. The daughter comes downstairs, sits on the couch. The mom sits next to her. And then the dad looks around and kind of sees this crowd that's gathered around him. He turns the TV off and says, what's going on? The mom says, your daughter has something she wants to tell you. And every eye turns to this little 16-year-old girl. She opens her mouth and just breaks down into tears. She can't get it out. The dad doesn't come to her or rescue her. He just stares at her as she's crying. And she just keeps sobbing. It goes on. And finally, in the midst of her tears, she mutters, Daddy, I'm pregnant. And then she loses it. Completely breaks down. And Mark said, that immediately, without hesitating, the dad gets up, walks towards her, 
scoops his left hand under her knees and his right hand behind her back, picks her up, sits down on the couch, puts her in his lap, pulls her in close, and whispers in her ear, you listen to me. You are my daughter, and I love you no matter what. You will not walk through this alone. You understand? And she nodded her head and just buried it in his chest. And he just held her all night. That was all he said. You want to know where to take your shame and your brokenness? There is a father who loves you like that. But I think about that story, and I think about that little girl and how scared she was to talk to her dad, and I'm convinced that it wasn't because he was so intimidating. It's something, it's something else going on there. Because I think about that dad. I, I have a five-year-old daughter myself. I'm going to get emotional saying this. I'm imagining myself in that situation. Because I'm thinking about what's going through the dad's head. Because it, it's not just a moment that's happening right there. There's history. Because he held her in the hospital. <coughs> he fed her through the night. He helped her ride her first bicycle and watched her swim in the pool. He was there from the beginning because he made her. That's why she was so intimidated to go talk to him. But isn't it amazing to know that the very one who made us, the very one that we are scared to death to bring our shame to. The very one who made us is the one who will wrap us in His arms and hold us and redeem us when we cannot redeem our own shame. I want to close with this. One of my favorite passages in the Bible. Isaiah 46, verses 3-4. through This is God speaking to His people and He says this, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. Into gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made you, and I will bear you. I will carry you, and I will save you. This is the promise God gives his people. That when we don't know where to take our shame, he says, I have made you. The very one who made us will hold us and carry us when we can't carry that shame ourselves. That's what a redemptive story looks like. And tomorrow, I want you to see your story in light of the one who made you. I want you to see your story from the author's perspective, and I want you to see just how much your author adores you. Let's pray. God, we, we are all broken and we are all filled with shame and insecurity. And sometimes we don't even realize that. that. That can even be a blind spot on our own hearts. But God, I pray that you would help us to see that shame and that brokenness, bring it to light to every single person in this room so that they might turn to you, the only one who can rescue them from that shame, the only true hero in history, 
the only one who truly tells us the truth about who we are and what we need. The very one who came to shed light on the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome that light. Lord, would you draw us to yourselves? Would you help us to see that we need you because we need redemption? And that every story that is speaking of redemption is pointing us to the great redeemer. And God, would you help us to see that as our author, as the one who made us, who created us, would you help us to see that we are not made by accident, and you have put us here for a reason, and it is because you have loved us to know you. And so God, we love you and we adore you. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Guys.